You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. And special thanks to our newest patrons, Jay Maestral, Jake Koppelman, John Neeson, and Og Quag. It's all of you that make this possible. If you'd be interested in helping to support the show, you can find out more at patreon.com slash pirate history podcast. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When the fleet of Barbary pirate vessels left the harbor of Algiers in late 1609, things didn't look great for the Barbary pirates. At least, they looked bad for this particular brand of European Barbary pirates. John Ward, Simon Danziker, Sir Francis Verney, Bill Graves, Richard Bishop, Big Pete, and all of the captains with famous names... Well, they all had decisions to make. Recently, Barbary had become a lot less friendly toward the pirates than it once had been. Now, Barbary had long had a culture of corsairs and privateers, dating back to 1492 at the least, and the brothers Barbarossa. Under Suleiman the Magnificent, alongside whom the brothers Barbarossa fought, the Ottoman Empire grew into an up-and-coming world-class power, they always had big, expansive land armies, hence the whole, you know, sacking Constantinople thing. But to be a real world-class power in the 16th century meant sea power. So alongside Queen Elizabeth in England and the Netherlands under William the Silent, the Ottoman Empire under Suleiman employed those corsair privateers to serve as a navy. And Barbarossa and Suleiman did quite well. But when they died... Their heirs were unable to keep up with the European innovations at sea. Now, there were a large number of capable and talented sea commanders that followed Barbarossa. Dragut and Murat Rais, for example, and they did well for a time, but the superior European round ships were just better than their galleys. So, once Europe was at peace after the Anglo-Spanish War, and when the Eighty Years' War went on hiatus, The leaders of Algiers and Tunis especially were happy to welcome in European privateers. They brought with them shipwrights and pilots and navigators and gunnery experts, and those specialists used their knowledge to enrich themselves as well as to provide protection for those Barbary city-states. But they also taught the locals how to do all those jobs. They trained up the Barbary corsairs in every aspect of the modern maritime craft. And then... The Barbary pirates, the European Barbary pirates, 
started causing a ruckus in the Mediterranean. They started agitating the crowned heads of Europe. The Ottomans were at war in Eastern Europe, as they almost always were. They were at a semblance of war in the Indian Ocean. More on that later. But Barbary had been relatively peaceful ever since the Battle of Lepanto. The Mediterranean, as far as the Ottomans were concerned, was not an active front. It had been so for about 40 years. But now, Venice and Spain especially were poking their noses around. They were blockading ports as they had in Algiers, and it became clear that they were thinking about new and exciting conquests in Barbary. Since the pirates had taught the Barbary locals everything they knew, they were no longer useful, and they were becoming something of a lodestone around the necks of the Barbary leaders. Now, Tripoli had never had a huge presence of European pirates, but both Tunis and Algiers kicked all of theirs out for a while. The biggest problem here, well, you know, it's always a problem not to have a home base, but even more pressing for Ward and Danziker and their lot was the presence of Spanish and Venetian and Dutch and French fleets patrolling the Mediterranean. They were out there right now on the hunt for these pirates. No, I don't know that any of the pirates knew anything about the French fleet or anything about the English squadron that was still waiting outside the Strait of Gibraltar, but they were there. But they did know about the Venetians and the Spanish, so what were these pirates to do? Well, after leaving Algiers, they just decided to leave entirely. The fleets, under all the pirates that we just mentioned, were, well, they dispersed after the battle with the Spanish fleet in Algiers Harbor. They were too large to avoid notice if they stayed together, but all of them agreed to meet up in Morocco. And thus began what will prove to be the beginning of the end of what is at least our version of the history of Barbary piracy. This is episode 97, Afterward. There are a couple of things I'd like to note here. First, about the title. I lifted it whole cloth from Greg Bach's book, Barbary Pirate, The Life and Crimes of John Ward. I'm not clever enough to come up with something like that on my own, and yeah, I know it makes a bit more sense when it's in an actual afterword, in a book, in text, and not a podcast episode, but I really liked it, and since it's from a book about pirates, and this is a show about pirates, I think a little theft is to be expected. And second, this is technically our 100th episode. We've had three unnumbered special episodes in the past, so this is the 100th episode I've put out. And that's, I mean, that's crazy to me for a few reasons. When I first came up with the plan to do this show, I originally intended for it to be brief. I thought that there would be a few episodes of background, a few on Francis Drake, and then a little time on Henry Morgan and the Buccaneers, then immediately on to Henry Avery, and finally, the real meat of the story, the Pirates of Nassau. Now, that didn't happen. First of all, because the deeper I delve into pirates, the more stories I find that I want to share with you. But then, there's just the fact that I'm not that capable about being that brief about anything. When it comes to the Barbary Pirates, for example, I've been talking about them for several months, and they were meant to be just a brief diversion, a sort of a palate cleanser for a few weeks. If you were to take a look at my outline, well, I outlined two episodes for talking about John Ward, and I think maybe three about the Barbarossas. And I've done significantly more than that about both of those characters. 
I also never expected to get this far into this podcast because when I started it, I never expected the warm reception and response that I've wound up receiving from all of you. I thought it would be a fun hobby, a way for me to talk about the things that I find interesting about pirates and piracy, and that maybe somebody out there would find that interesting as well. But it's turned into more than that. It's something that I cherish being able to do, and I'm constantly grateful to everyone who gives me the opportunity to do it. But we're not going to be doing any special 100th episode stuff today. We'll save that for the official episode 100 in a couple of weeks. I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks. Also, despite the title, we're not actually going to talk much about John Ward today. We've already discussed his last, mostly peaceful years and eventual death. In many ways, his adventures, even though he's present here, are largely over. He'll go back out to sea a couple of times, but not to any great effect. This is his last major endeavor, and while he was still a big name, a famous pirate, he really played second fiddle to Zyman Danziker, and in a lot of ways even more so to those that would follow, those who would come afterward, if you will. If you want a more in-depth and nuanced look at Jack Ward, I really suggest Mr. Bach's book. It's the most readable and interesting modern history about Ward that I've found. And if you'd like the larger story of the Barbary Pirates told, I certainly suggest Adrian Tenniswood's book, Pirates of Barbary. But for now, back to the story of the pirates fleeing Algiers in the Mediterranean. On this voyage, it was the Dutch running the show. The most prominent among them was, of course, Simon Danziker, but only for now. Remember, he was one of the few pirates who was still somewhat welcome in Barbary. Redwan Pasha had kicked all of the pirates out of Algiers at the end of the blockade. I mean, the blockade was damaging to the economy, and the pirates themselves caused a lot of problems. But it was understood that Danziker and his fleet were welcome back any time, as long as they brought some goods back with them a little something to contribute to Algiers and to mitigate some of the damage done by the blockade. But, well, it seems that Danziker may have been of a different mind about Barbary than the rest of the pirates at this point. If he was, though, he was, at least for now, keeping that to himself. More than a few of the pirates had followed John Ward's lead in leaving Christianity behind in favor of Islam. While we did question John Ward's motives, and maybe even suggest certain practical, mercenary reasons for doing so, that's not a brush that we can use to paint all the pirates. Many of them probably did convert for similar mercenary reasons, but many of them were legitimate conversions of faith. And then I think it's important to remember that the world in 1608 was a lot different than our world today. Religion was much more closely tied to every culture in the world than it is in our modern society. For many of the pirates, for many people who immigrated to other cultures, conversion, in this case to Islam, was in a way just a part of the process of joining another society. You know, today, when we move a significant distance, we'll probably need to get a new ID and maybe find a new bank and a library card. And then, if you are a person of faith, you might look for the right community for you. But back then, conversion was probably more important than anything else. Joining the congregation was part of joining your community. 
Do you want to get married or own property or be properly handled upon your death? Well, you'd better have a church to which you belong, or, you know, a synagogue or a mosque. So even those who weren't just practical mercenaries trying to get ahead in their society, even those that weren't legitimate conversions of faith, nearly all of the pirates converted to Islam, and that's why there was so much concern over Christians becoming renegados. But Simon Danziker, in this as in so many other things, was an enigma. He didn't convert like Jack Ward. He didn't convert like most of his own followers. He decided to stay, if not a faithful Christian, at least relatively unaffiliated. And that may explain something of the actions that were to come on the part of Simon Danziker. Now, after leaving Algiers on their way to Morocco, a few pirates were intercepted or captured by one or another of the fleets that were out patrolling. But by and large, everyone made it to their destination. Now, it was a difficult road. They stayed mostly close to shore, which was where most of the patrols were. And then they actually went through the strait to reach the Atlantic, and those were even more heavily patrolled. But still, these were skilled smugglers and pirates, so nearly everyone made it. Well, probably. See, it's possible that two names who we know didn't make it at all. Simon Danziker and Sir Francis Verney. Around this time, their path is going to diverge from the other pirates, and it's entirely possible that those two, along with their closest associates, didn't even go to Morocco. So Francis Verney and Simon Danziker may have been at Morocco, they may have been involved in some of the decisions that would be made there, but we're going to operate off the assumption that they didn't, because we're talking about that next time. And even if they were, they weren't a major factor in it because they left. At about the time, the forces of Morocco realized that there were hundreds of pirates in their midst, Simon Danziker and Francis Verney were already back on the prowl. Now, what ships they captured out there are lost to history. But right about this time, Simon Danziker very much isn't. He begins popping up in official records from England and France and Italy. Now, he was always prominent in records from the Netherlands, but this was different. Instead of, as was usually the case, playing second fiddle to Ward, Simon Danziker was front and center in all of this foreign correspondence. And it wasn't some great act of piracy. As I said, there were no notable captures around this time. But it was... Well, it was all due to a request on the part of Simon Danziker for a pardon. You know, not some official, state-sanctioned, notarized, signed and sealed request, just rumors. But they were popping up everywhere, all of a sudden. So it looks very much like Simon Danziker managed, after he left the other pirates behind, to get word to one of his agents operating in Europe. And they were able to slip word to the right people that Danziker wanted to return. And there was a fair amount of interest in granting that pardon. Say you were a king, and you removed a dangerous pirate from the high seas. Well, that's a decent feather for your cap. It was a bit of a gamble. The ex-pirate would become your responsibility after the pardon, and if they returned to piracy, you might easily lose more than you had gained. But then there were other reasons that one might want to pardon a notorious pirate. There were obviously going to be stipulations in the pardon. A hefty fine was implied. But, 
then there was the possibility that someone like Simon Danziker would work for you. In much the same way that he'd served the Pasha of Algiers, Simon Danziker could be employed by whomever happened to pardon him in the modernization of local fleets and shipyards. A provision could be included that he would be a free man after his fine was paid, but he would be required to provide certain services as the government saw fit. These would be expected to be oversight of the local fleet. At least that's what they would imply. Now, England and the Netherlands weren't terribly keen on the idea. James I had something of a bad taste in his mouth when it came to pardoning pirates after the whole debacle with Ward, and the Netherlands didn't really want their most notorious native son back in their country. That might look bad. Plus, they didn't really have a need of someone to modernize their navies. They were quickly building two of the most proficient navies in the world. But France and Italy, on the other hand, they did have a need of someone like Danziker to teach their shipwrights and their sailors. Now, we don't know who may have offered a pardon to Simon Danziker, except that France, at least, did get word to him. They agreed to grant Simon Danziker pardon and allow him back to what had once been his home city, the southern French city of Marseille. That pardon would have the stipulations I already mentioned, but Danziker, in order for the pardon to take place, would have to do one other thing. He would have to prove that he was a man of his word. He was expected to do something grandiose to show the king and the council there in France that he really was sincere in his desire to leave Barbary behind and become a French citizen. We know that they got these messages to Danziker because, well, that's what he did. It's unclear if Simon Danziker told Sir Francis Verney anything about any of this on their way back to Algiers. There's plenty of reasons that any respectable pirate might want to stop on the coast of France, and Sir Francis Verney probably wouldn't have suspected that the reasons included pardon. It looks like Verney didn't know anything. Perhaps Danziker didn't think that he could trust this quite recent and by all accounts very devout convert to Islam. If Sir Francis was in on what was about to happen, he very prudently kept his mouth shut. So both of the pirates, along with their closest associates, returned to Algiers. Presumably they brought a decent haul with them to be allowed back in. They were greeted as returning heroes and close friends. They were fated and feasted and pampered by the Pasha. And Danziker the entire time played the part of the loyal admiral and close friend of Redawan. And nothing in that was suspicious in the very least. He was a returning hero, he had been many times before, and he was an admiral and close friend of the Pasha. But while these festivities were going on, Simon Danziker's men got into position. In the very small hours of the morning, on one day in August 1609, Simon Danziker and his men, they made their move. They knew that they were going to leave Barbary, and if they were going to do so, they would need men, Christian men, to help them sail. They had crews on their ships, but they were mostly Muslim and those Muslim corsairs certainly wouldn't help them leave Barbary forever. So the men who had gotten themselves into position during the feast, 
they attacked a slave barracks there in Algiers. They did so quietly, this wasn't a frontal assault, but they killed all of the guards and they captured the slave masters inside. Then they set the European slaves free. Now this may have been, in many ways, an act of conscience on the part of Simon Danziker. He may have felt extreme guilt over having been a party to capturing so many of his fellow Europeans. But it was also practical. Among those slaves, most of them had some seafaring experience. Most of the slaves captured by all of the pirates were, you know, sailors. That's where they captured them. And when they happened to come across women or children, they were usually sold off very fast to families who had need of them in some sort of domestic role. But most of the sailors that were captured were kept in these sorts of barracks to act as galley slaves. If they were not going to be galley slaves, many of them were used as farm labor, and they were sort of rented out. They were able to get a fair number of decent sailors and fold them into the crew of Zyman Dansker's ship. Now, all of the rest of the slaves that were in these barracks were set free as well, which means that at least several hundred, perhaps more than a thousand slaves were right here, set free. Now, those other freed slaves, those who were not going to be part of Danziker's crew, well, Danziker didn't just set them free and let them go about their business. No, he gave them weapons, and he told them to follow him to the harbor. They wouldn't necessarily be a part of his crew, but they would be able to find their own ships and sail away to safety. Again, there is a practical reason for this. Remember that grandiose gesture? Freeing a thousand or more Christian slaves doesn't mean much if they all get recaptured as soon as you leave. He wanted to ensure that they would make it back to Europe with him. Now this exodus of escaped slaves did attract notice in Algiers. They had to fight their way through several units of guards that tried to stop them, and then the dockmen, and they killed everyone who got in their way. And there were certainly plenty of Muslim corsairs and regular soldiers there in Algiers to stop them, but in the wee hours of the morning when everyone was sleeping, the pirates were able to get through with only a few small skirmishes, for which their superior numbers meant they won every time. And as we know, pirates, those who were leading this charge, are very good at ending fights quietly. That's part of the job description. But when they made it to the harbor, there was another fight in store. Now Danziker and his men went first. They were well known, and they made it to Danziker's ship with no cause for alarm. Why would any of the Muslim crew on board be concerned about their captain showing up? So they were captured with ease. And from the deck of his ship, Danziker was able to delegate duties out to the rest of his primary crew to ensure that everyone else made it to safety. He had a few of his top officers, five or six of them, along with some of the most hardened killers among his crew, leading the rest of the slaves toward the ships that they would be capturing. Remember, most of these slaves were one-time sailors and certainly knew quite a bit about fighting on deck, but they weren't pirates. This was a little bit out of their wheelhouse, but with the proper leadership and a few men to steal their backbone, they were able to sneak aboard ships that had already been agreed upon earlier in the day, perhaps the day before, kill the crew entirely, and take their ship for themselves. They took the five or six best ships in the harbor, and remember, these were ships that Danziker had personally overseen the construction of. He'd probably designed elements of them himself. 
He knew which ships to take, and his men knew how to sail them expertly. They left probably hundreds of dead Algerians in their wake, guards, slave masters, soldiers, sailors, and other corsairs. But there was one last step in this master plan, in this grandiose gesture. Any ship that Danziger thought was worthy enough or fast enough to chase them down once they left was bombarded with oil and tar and hay and then set alight. As the half a dozen or so pirate ships led by Danziger and crewed by freed slaves left the harbor of Algiers, the entire fleet, at least anything of any quality, was left burning behind them. The next action of Simon Danziger does actually kind of make me question exactly when he learned that France and Marseille offered to take him in. Instead of traveling north to travel up the coast of Italy to get to France, he traveled west, along the coast of Africa. Now, this may once again just be practicality. Anybody who decided to chase him would probably go north. That's where he was most likely going, rather than to other Islamic lands. And what makes that so strange to me is, well, if he wasn't required by the stipulations of this agreement to commit this grand gesture to prove his sincerity, then why did he attack Algiers? Was it simply to escape with enough men to sail on his ship? Was it, in fact, that lingering hint of guilt that he felt, and a desire to release these slaves before leaving, many of whom he may have captured personally? I don't know the answer to that question, but keep it in mind. But if he did, in fact, know about this stipulation, if it did, in fact, exist, then he may have thought that even a thousand Christian slaves wasn't a grand enough gesture for the king of France. Perhaps he thought that they required something more of him, something taken from one of their other enemies. This newly formed pirate fleet under Danziker sailed through the Strait of Gibraltar and once out into the open ocean, almost immediately, they happened upon a Spanish treasure fleet headed back from the New World. Now this wasn't the sort of treasure fleet that you might picture, the sort complete with a dozen treasure ships and guarded by galleons. Those wouldn't be seen for decades yet, into the time of Morgan or even beyond. This fleet was perhaps only about a half a dozen ships, with one of them a treasure galleon. The other ships in the fleet would have been gunboats or other smaller ships, perhaps proto-frigates intended to guard the galleon. And in 1609, that would have been a threat. That would have been a powerful force. Even Danziker's own custom-built private pirate fleet would have been a bit wary. But it was still a serious find. This was a treasure galleon, and honestly, in any era of piracy, it would be a windfall, the likes of which most pirates would only dream. And most pirates, even later on, would be unable to capture a fleet like this. A few could, of course. Blackbeard in his frigate, or Bartholomew Roberts, Henry Avery, certainly, Henry Morgan, maybe, and absolutely Ching Shi, but only a handful of pirates would be able to take this on. But right here, Danziker proved his mettle, and proved that he deserves a place alongside those other greatest pirates. Now... Most of the men in Danziker's fleet were escaped slaves, and they'd only been freed from their imprisonment for a few days, and those had been days hard at sea, working to escape as fast as possible. If this came down to an actual fight at sea, well, 
less than a third, maybe less than a quarter of Danziker's men were actually in fighting shape. But remember, Danziker was the devil captain, Dali Rais, and he was that bigger-than-life theatrical pirate. And that's what puts him in that category with men like Blackbeard and Henry Morgan. Gunboats are fast and nimble and well-armed, and galleons were, of course, the powerhouse ships of the day. But when they found themselves suddenly surrounded by half a dozen pirate vessels and a Dutch frigate led by a man who was famous the world over for his grand acts of piracy, boldly sails up to the galleon, well, a fight seems like a really bad idea. That's the sort of act that only a man who was assured of victory and who had proven his ability to find it time and time again, that's the sort of action a man like that would take. The Spanish at least believed this to be true, and they surrendered without a fight. The Venetian ambassador to Madrid wrote back to the Doge and Senate of Venice, quote, Half a million of gold and booty was taken, and that, one may say, in the very harbor of Seville. End quote. Now, in 1609, the gold mines in Central and South America were still producing gold, but there had been a century of extracting as much gold from the Americas as possible. So it wouldn't have been a ship filled with gold and pearls. There would have been a little bit of that on board, but mostly it probably would have been silver and probably indigo to top that off, along with a good amount of sugar as well. But still, that's, well, that's all very valuable. Valuable to the tune of half a million gold pieces and that is a significant haul for any pirate. Now, the ambassador may have been exaggerating, or maybe not. But now Danziker had half a million in booty, along with several hundred recently freed Christian slaves, perhaps as many as 200 Muslim corsairs prisoner on board his ships, and he was now sailing at the head of a fleet that numbered perhaps as many as 12 ships. Danziker's own frigate, along with the Spanish galleon, and the best ships from among those he had captured from both Algiers and this treasure fleet. With all of the freed slaves that he had with him, he may have had enough sailors to take the entire treasure fleet with him. And with that in his possession, Danziker returned home to southern France, to Marseille. Now that was actually his home. You might recall that after his career as a privateer for the Dutch came to an end, Simon Danziker moved to Marseille, where he married the local governor's daughter. A quarrel with his father-in-law, the governor, and the magistrate sent him away from Marseille to the Mediterranean and to Barbary. But before that quarrel took place, Simon Danziker did take the time to start a family before he was chased off. Now this might be a case of a well-respected Dutch privateer in good standing moving to southern France where he fell deeply in love with a young maiden. She was the governor's daughter and he wooed her through proper courtship. Though he did quarrel with his father-in-law as young men are wont to do and was eventually chased off. Or this might be the case of a young Dutch rapscallion and sometimes pirate fleeing the law in the rest of France, which he was doing, and making his way in secret to Marseille. Then, when he met the governor's daughter, this charming, handsome young pirate seduced her, got her with child, then was forced to marry her, as would only be proper, and then chased off by the local governor, who happened to be the father of his bride. 
You can almost picture the governor realizing his daughter was with child, realizing that this Dutch pirate was responsible for this, not wanting a scandal or to have a bastard for her grandson, so insisting that they get married, perhaps at the point of a pike, and then, once everything was in order and nobody would look at him scornfully, chasing this pirate off, never expecting him to return. Personally, that's the story that I prefer. Either way, Danziger did have a wife and a young son waiting for him in Marseille. But I can only imagine that homecoming. You know, he was probably overjoyed to see his wife and son. He'd been away for a little over two years now, and we can presume that the feeling was returned. But what about the father-in-law? The man who chased you off two years earlier, who was probably waiting alongside his daughter, your wife, and your son, his grandson, and he just happens to be the governor of the province, and you just happen to be a pirate, and not just any pirate, but one of the most famous pirates in the world. That's not an ideal situation. But then, Simon Dansker did have a few points in his favor here. First, he was in possession of a piece of paper signed by the king, saying that he was now allowed to be here in Marseille, regardless of what the local lord or the magistrate or his father-in-law thought about it. That's hard to argue with. And this wasn't just some random French king, this was Henry IV. This was the first Bourbon king of France, so kind of a big deal. And then there's the fact that Simon Danziker, coming back to Marseille, was probably the richest man in town. Maybe the local duke had more money, maybe. But even if he did, he lived on his estate, his castle, outside of town. And even if he did, Danziker was still number two. Now, that might have changed his status as the richest man in town after his fine was paid. But the local merchants there in town, and all of the officials who just had their pockets filled and their budgets made fat... Well, they were certainly aware of the boon to the economy that Simon Danziker and all of his men brought with them. And then, in addition to the royal writ and the chests upon chests full of treasure, Danziker brought with him what was among the most powerful navies in southern France. You know, here's half a dozen frigates, five or six gunships, and a Spanish galleon. Now, Marseille did have a coast guard of sorts, but nothing to compare with this. Now, Danziker himself wasn't personally allowed to keep any but his primary vessel, but they were incorporated into the fleet of Marseille, which became significantly stronger. So again, as he may have not been the richest man in town, everyone knew what he had done for them, and he may no longer have personally had the most powerful fleet in southern France, but everyone knew who brought that fleet to them. And there were regulations placed upon Danziker and his ability to sail. He was still the owner of his ship, but he wasn't exactly the captain anymore. See, he wasn't really allowed to leave the harbor. His men, a few of them were allowed to stay in Marseille, but most of them were dispersed elsewhere throughout France. That would make it a lot harder for Simon Danziker to gather his men in the tavern, buy a few rounds of drinks and convince them all to relive their glory days by going out on a cruise to attack a few Spanish or Italian vessels. And then, of course, the nearly a thousand escaped slaves he brought with him were sent back to their homes. This earned him a lot of goodwill, as you might imagine, but the king was no fool, 
nor was his father-in-law, and they both saw that Danziker kept to his regulations. But the money and the ships and the fame and the royal writ did carry a lot of weight. I can almost imagine the governor standing there alongside his daughter with a false smile plastered across his face. I can imagine the warm welcome he offered to Simon Danziker, but all the while I can imagine the maybe chagrin he felt inside. However, after a few days to get settled, Dali Rais, the devil captain among the most famous pirates in the world, bought a reasonable house in town, moved his wife and son in, and began to settle down. The king of France had other plans for Danziker, but for now put a pin in that. Since the escape from Algiers, I haven't mentioned Sir Francis Verney. Danziker left him behind in Algiers when he pulled off his great escape. And Sir Francis was English. He was white, he was European, and he was a pirate. None of these things were particularly in favor in Algiers at the moment. But he was Muslim, and faithfully so. Reportedly, he wore his slippers and his turban and his scimitar everywhere he went, all three of which were given to him ceremonially when he converted. Verney was never as powerful or influential as Ward or Danziker. I love his story. It's a fascinating piece of personal drama and distinct from the rest of the pirates, but he wasn't exactly a great pirate. He had his own ship, he had education and a gentlemanly manner, and that got him far in the pirate world. He also had a fair amount of money, but he was never a successful or talented sea commander. The bigger problem for him at the moment, though, was his lack of any rapport with Redouan Pasha. He knew the old day in Tunis, but virtually no one in Algiers, now that all the pirates were gone. And now the fleet of Algiers was burned. Most of the crews for them were massacred, and the slaves meant to man the oars of the galleys were all gone. And all of that was due to a single man of which Sir Francis Verney was a known associate. I can only imagine this was an uncomfortable moment for Sir Francis, to find himself alone in a city that currently hated pirates, especially the person with whom he had arrived in Algiers. Now, we don't have any accurate account of how things went for him around this time, but we can make some assumptions due to his actions that followed. I feel pretty safe in assuming that the Pasha was furious and full of wrath and wanted to take it out on Sir Francis. Now, he might not have been, but he does seem to have had quite a temper and no love for Europeans or, in particular, the English. You might remember how he acted toward John Ward, despite having felt no ill effects from the pirate due to the actions of another Englishman. But even if that were the case, somehow... Sir Francis talked himself out of any trouble he might have found himself in. Now that might have something to do with the sudden loss of capable sea commanders that Algiers had just suffered, along with the loss in ships. Sir Francis had a few of his own ships, with their own crews, and all of them with capable commanders. He, and more importantly his men, had the know-how and experience to go out there and to capture more ships, they could bring them back and rebuild the fleet. They could also bring in income that wouldn't be coming in because so many of the Corsair leaders had just been killed. Whatever the reason, the Pasha gave Sir Francis license to do just that, and Francis did well. 
he rebuilt the strength of the Algerian fleet in just a few months. They weren't the best or the biggest ships in the Mediterranean, but they were good enough to defend the city while the shipwrights were busy rebuilding. It seems kind of like Sir Francis sort of took over Danziker's position after he left. It's kind of natural, there weren't really a lot of European pirates left in Barbary, and the few that were would have gravitated towards the most famous commander among them, Sir Francis. Now, there were still a ton of pirates in North Africa, but they were almost all over in Morocco right now. So Sir Francis did well in Algiers, although not as well as Ward or Danziker by any means. He had the opportunity, maybe, to be as successful and famous as those other two pirates, but he didn't have the experience. He wasn't really much of a sea commander. Remember, he'd never been a privateer. He had occasionally, before becoming a pirate, been a mercenary soldier, but most of his life had been spent as the idle rich there in England. However, he did have a fair amount of talent underneath him, but even with that, even if he had been as talented a commander as Danziker or Ward, it's unlikely he would have reached the same heights. The climate in Barbary had changed toward European pirates. Had Verney himself not been a devout Muslim, he very likely would have been killed, or at the very least chased off. But despite his successes, misfortune did come for Sir Francis Verney. Almost a year after Simon Danziker left Barbary for Marseille, Sir Francis was ambushed by a Spanish Coast Guard fleet out in the Mediterranean. They sank one of his ships and damaged the two others. Now Sir Francis managed to escape the ambush but he did get caught in a storm immediately after. His men and his ships were all weak after the battle, and he lost another one of his fleet. Sir Francis still managed to escape the inevitable. He limped back to Algiers, but his crew was sick and injured, and his ship was battered. And then he found himself in a familiar position. In much the same way that his mentor, Jack Ward, had experienced a few months earlier, Sir Francis Verney found that the populace of his home city turned on him right when he was at his weakest. They thought that he needed to answer for the loss of life. Now there are letters in the archives of the Verney household saved from their most famous and least loved son. Remember, his stepmother and his estranged wife-slash-stepsister were still running the household. Those letters from Sir Francis begged them to let him return to England, to petition the king for a pardon. It's, in a lot of ways, surprising that these letters still exist, considering they went unanswered by his family. It appears that as far as they were concerned, Sir Francis was dead. He had been as soon as he converted to Islam. Perhaps they held a spark of hope he would return before then, but at that point, there was no turning back. I do wonder who chose to save those letters. I feel like had his mother-in-law received them, she would have burned them or thrown them out. Maybe, maybe his estranged wife still held a little bit of affection for her one-time husband. But here, history loses track of Sir Francis Verney after those letters were sent. For some time, he's gone from the pages of history until, five years later, William Lithgow, the... Scottish traveler that gave us our last account of John Ward as an old man in Tunis? Well, after he met with John Ward on his return trip to Europe, he stopped off in Sicily. It's a natural stopping point on that voyage, but it is a little bit coincidental that he visited a hospital there, St. Mary of Pity, and there he found a familiar face, 
It was Sir Francis Fernie. He was sick, and he was dying. William Lithgow met with him and recorded Verney's account of his final years. After his family ignored his pleas to come home, Verney was forced to go back out to sea with what proved to be a fraction of the power he'd once held. It was on that voyage, unable to defend himself, that he was captured by a Sicilian ship and forced to work the oars as a galley slave. Now on this voyage he was the only European on the ship. Everyone else was a Barbary native. Luckily for him, a Jesuit priest found his way on board this Sicilian galley, and found a conspicuous European among a crew of North African galley slaves. The priest asked this European who he was to be put in such a position, and Sir Francis told him his name and then his story. He told everything from his tumultuous life in England to his self-imposed exile, from his time serving as a soldier in the Netherlands and then in Morocco, to his eventual turn to piracy. He told the priest of his decision to convert to Islam, and then finally, he told the priest about the windfall of sorrow that had brought him here. The priest convinced Sir Francis to come back into the Christian fold. Now, Sir Francis had been a member of the English church before this, but the Jesuits saw him baptized as a Catholic, and then found him employment in the Sicilian army. This wasn't glorious work, it wasn't the sort of work that would normally be expected of a young English nobleman, nor was it anything to compare with the heights of being a famous pirate, but it was honest work. Now, Sir Francis did this for some time, but all the while, in his chest, he kept his turban, his slippers, and his scimitar. Coincidentally, it was during a skirmish with Muslim corsairs at the battlements that Sir Francis was wounded and grew ill. He was taken to the local hospital, St. Mary of Pity, where he waited out his days expecting death. And it was there, in pain and nearing the end of his life, that William Lithgow found him and took his very last confessions and an account of his last days. Sir Francis had asked two final favors of Lithgow, who he'd known for some time, if not well. He had virtually no money, so he asked for William Lithgow to pay for a proper burial when he died. Lithgow, a man of his word, did so, there on the grounds of the hospital. And then, Verney gave him all the money he had left in the world and asked one final favor, for Lithgow to return the chest back to England to his one-time wife. Lithgow had a few more adventures in his travels, or at least wrote that he did, but he did eventually get the chest back to the Verney estate. When his estranged wife opened the chest, she found a small pouch filled with gold and jewels, enough to pay for his burial and more, quite a bit more, but it was all hidden underneath a turban, slippers, and a scimitar. Her mother, Francis Verney's mother-in-law, had passed away by this point, and if his estranged wife did hold a little affection in her heart, it showed here. He had been officially declared dead by his stepmother, but his wife, his one-time wife, kept those three articles, his turban, his slippers, and his scimitar. And today, you can actually go see them. They are on display, under glass, in the ancestral home of the Verney family. Next time, we will finish the tale of Zyman Danziker. We will also share a quick note about Jack Ward, and then we will move on to the independent pirate republic of Salih. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. 
I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our new patrons, all of our longtime patrons, everybody who has left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has mentioned this show and recommended it to your friends or family or online, without all of you I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au, that's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight